I'm Jonathan Bastian, and this week on KCRW's Life Examined, Wednesday's unprecedented storming of the U.S. Capitol stunned and shocked the world. An expert in grief helps us make sense of the emotional roller coaster many of us have been on. We witnessed the breakdown of society yesterday. And, you know, we always think about death and grief is around death. But there's a lot of things we saw the death of some of the things we hold so dear in our society yesterday. Then, later, we'll ask what goes on inside the mind of an extremist. What we see among political extremists who resort to the kind of violence that we saw yesterday, oftentimes that's coupled with a high degree or a high level of mortality salience. There's this sense that literally people's physical lives are in jeopardy, and they're in jeopardy from a number of external threats. Collective grief and the psychology of extremism, all ahead on Life Examined. If the last five days, starting with the Georgia election and followed by the storming of the Capitol, have left you feeling profoundly sad, confused, scared, you're not alone. It's as if something deep within us in this country felt broken and exposed. It could have been the shocking display of violence in which five people died. Or perhaps it was something more symbolic, like witnessing the peaceful transfer of power simply dissolve in front of our eyes. So how do we make sense of what's happened without normalizing what we've seen? To address our collective disarray, we've reached out to two familiar voices on this show. David Kessler is an expert on grief and loss and the author of Finding Meaning, the Sixth Stage of Grief. And Tanya Israel is a psychologist at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and author of Beyond Your Bubble, How to Connect Across the Political Divide. Well, David Kessler and Tanya Israel, welcome back to Life Examined. Thanks so much, Jonathan. It's great to be back with you. Glad to be with you. Well, David, l- let's start with you. Um, last time you and I spoke, we were talking about how in this pandemic, there was this incredible feeling of grief of the society that had changed so much. And here we are again, making sense of, of a tragic set of circumstances. And I know personally, I was amazed at seeing the emotional outpouring of, of my family members, of my friends. How do we begin to make sense of just what we're feeling right now as a society or as a country? What do you think? Well, we witnessed the breakdown of society and watching, you know, we always think about death and grief is around death, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of things. We saw the death of some of the things we hold so dear in our society. Mm-hmm. There was breakdowns and it was traumatic to watch and lives were lost. And we we often underestimate that we, you know, we have this thought that if it's not happening personally to me in my home, it's not really happening to me. For us all watching, it was vicarious trauma to see this. That's why we're all heavy in the days after and disappointed in what happened. You know, in grief, we talk about grief as the breaking of the assumptive world. We have the assumptive world that we have peaceful transitions. We can work anything out. We can disagree, but it doesn't make you my enemy. And all that broke down for us yesterday. Hmm. There was this feeling, wasn't there, that that a set of norms that we've relied on, a set of traditions, 
a set of respects that we have called upon for decades seem to almost just vanish in front of our eyes, don't you think? Absolutely. I think, you know, we, we, I think about what we teach our children, you know, use your words, work it out, you know, be, uh, be a, a good loser if you happen to not be on the winning side. I mean, all those things, all our values. And I think we've gotten off track that we have thought that, well, we can say anything, but it doesn't mean, you know, we all have our right to say something. And just like we teach our kids, words matter and have consequences. Boy, did that play out yesterday. And what we're left with is sadness and anger and upset and confusion and absolutely grief that our world has come to this. Mm. Do you remember kind of how you felt in the process as you watched it? What was your internal process like? I think I was in shock. Mm. It was sort you know, it was one of those things where you go, Oh, all right. Yeah, there's some protest. And then wait a minute. They're actually getting in. Wait, someone's been hurt. Wait, we've stopped the peaceful. You know, it's sort of build and build and build it until all of a sudden I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is really huger, more horrific than I really understood what was happening. It was sort of all of us evolving together about, oh, we can't just say and do whatever we want. Mm. without consequences. Right. Tanya Israel, I, I'm curious how, how you felt. Um, somebody who studied communication, uh, who has studied how, how groups uh, manage to get along, which seems harder than ever. What was your process like um, watching yourself and also the community around you? It's interesting because I've been looking at a lot of the research about the divide that we have, not between left and right, but the divide between people who are more emotionally engaged in politics and people who are less so. Mm. And so I agree uh, that there that there was certainly a lot of trauma that people were experiencing and a lot of emotion that people were experiencing. And that was not universal. Like not everybody was experiencing this the same way. So I had, you know, somebody call me yesterday who said, oh my God, I'm terrified. And I said, yeah, this is really disturbing. And he said, aren't you terrified? And I said, that's, that's not what I'm feeling. I, I think part of it is that I felt like this was, I wasn't surprised that this happened. This seemed mm. like a, you know, an outcome that might be expected based on what all of the buildup had been. And so I was having a different emotional reaction. And one of the things that I realized is that often in these moments where something critical is going on, we want to connect with people who are having similar reactions. We want to feel supported and we want to feel like we're, you know, um, uh, having this this vibe with somebody else um, and, and we're in this with somebody else. And I think that people experience that a lot on social media where they're, they're tapping into these people who are having similar responses to something. And I think that that's important. I think that people need that to process what's going on in a way to, to find somebody who can, who, who can say, yes, I relate. I'm feeling the same thing. Mm. David, do you think that's important too? I mean, just in terms of how, how we process what we're feeling right now. Well, I always talk about grief must be witnessed. You know, we want what we're feeling witnessed in the same way that 
you know, Tanya's friend said, aren't you terrified? She wanted to know that someone else is feeling what she was feeling. And it is those moments we want to know. We're, we're, we're sort of trying to find some grounding in this. You know, when we're connecting with others, is my take real? Should I be worried? How worried should I be? You know, I'm experiencing this and it feels sad and I'm angry or I'm concerned or whatever it may be. You know, and I'm, I'm curious of Tanya, what she thinks about there's so many other people who I'm sure are having conversations different than us. Mm-hmm. How do we connect with them? Mm. You know, Absolutely. like you said, how do we get out of our bubble? Absolutely. And I think that's a great question because when I thought about and when I, you know, looked at social media to try to get a sense of some of the variation in reactions that people are having, because that's something that interests me, I think, okay, well, how do we reach out across these different kinds of reactions, especially in such a significant moment? So uh, I think the first thing that that's really important to keep in mind is that the insurgents are, were not an accurate representation of most people on the right. And I, I think that's one of the things that, that, I, that I hear people making a mistake um, all the time is sort of seeing the people at the most extreme on either side as being a representation of all people who, you know, are, are on that side of the political divide. Mm-hmm. And, and, it's, and it's just not true. So I, I think that if we can keep in mind that if we're talking to somebody who has a different view, it doesn't mean that they, they would take the extreme actions that that other people might take. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting point. Something we've talked about is, is not creating, uh, not turning everyone into the caricature. I mean... Can you give us kind of any advice right now as, as to how we should begin to reach out? I, I, I mean, I just saw a situation play out where in my own family, there was radically different visions of what happened. And some saw these people as patriots and some saw them as, as thugs. How do we begin to start even talking about that? So one of the things I always recommend is finding is being curious, uh, trying to find out more about what's behind what somebody says. So somebody says, I think they were patriots. I think saying, wow, that's a really, that's really different from the way I see it. I'm, I'm interested to know more about where you're coming from. And that's not the natural reaction that we would have, especially if we're feeling traumatized. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so probably what we need to do is maybe, um, get ourselves to a place where we want to have these conversations before we go into them. If we're not in a place to do that right now, if we're more in a place of seeking support from people who have similar views, then then that might be the best way to do the immediate processing. But then reach out and be interested in, I want to know, how do you see it that way? Even people who have very similar political views. I mean, I was, I've been having conversations with people like, was Mitch McConnell's statement about upholding the election results a breath of fresh air? Mm. And should we celebrate it? Or was it too little too late? And, you know, it's, and those are, in some ways, more subtle differences, but they can still feel um, uh, that they can, we can rub up against each other in those ways, especially when we're feeling really emotionally charged about something. And I would also add to that, and I think it goes along exactly with what she was saying, this idea that 
You know, when we talk about collective grief, usually in other forms, public grief, usually it's someone dying, a Princess Diana, a prince, something like that. You know, that prince died and it really affected you, or Princess Diana died. And, and we say to someone, but wait, you didn't know them. What's the big deal? Why are you so emotional? Mm-hmm. And the reality is some people are more connected to others. And just like we have to allow people to have their reactions, whatever they are, going right back to Tanya said, instead of going, you didn't know that famous person, what's the big deal? To say, I'm curious, what did Prince or Princess Diana mean to you? What did it mean to you that you feel unsafe now? Are you are you worried about the government collapsing? Are you worried about people protesting? You know, to exactly the same thing. Be curious about what we're feeling and to say, I'm curious, what, why, why don't you have a reaction? Tell me what makes you feel safe or okay with what's going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and is that what your reaction is? You know, if, if I, I, we have this saying, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. And so there's, there's almost a way that we judge people, not even based on the content of their opinions, but how riled up they are about them. And we have a lot of variation in terms of how we respond to things emotionally. And so I, I think that, that we need to be, we need to allow for that range and be interested in that range rather than sort of seeing um, someone's emotional reaction as a litmus test of whether or not they're on your side. And I'll tell you something else that I'm sure Tanya's heard in psychology, that we also say, if it's hysterical, it's historical. Mm. You know that we all have differences and we can come to one another and talk about them. But if you're so overreacting or so wounded and hurt and it felt unseen for years or, you know, that you haven't counted, your reaction is sort of above the norm. It is more intense because there's been more history to your wounding. And we also have to be curious about why, why you know, why, why does this difference in beliefs feel like we need to get out our guns what you know what's happened to you that you feel so unsafe in the world Mm. and how can we make each other feel safer and live together in this world and i think that's a great point in terms of the feeling of safety because chaos feels uh unsettling you know at least if not traumatic Mm. um for people and so what happened yesterday was very chaotic and and that i think was so scary you know like what 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 is going to happen here for our country and the safety of our country i i also think that piece about the historical um, we have some very recent history in this country around uh, protests related to law enforcement and uh, and racial injustice, and we and people are making a lot of comparisons, you know, around okay, well, how did the protesters act in this situation? How did uh, law enforcement act in this situation? And and people have a lot of feelings around all of that 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 are tapping into something that we've 
collectively been experiencing, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in the past uh, seven months. And so I, I think that we have to take all of those pieces into account to really understand the complexity of people's reactions. It's interesting because I, I think there's something happening here, which there was there was so much symbolism uh, that was taking place in front of us. You know, we think of the Capitol as a place of stability or as a symbol of stability or of hallowed ground or a place where we work our differences out. But I think that um, all of those things, as we were mentioning, began to kind of break down in front of us. And then the scenes of the law enforcement and what could have been, you know, white supremacists, we don't know. But uh, can you guys talk about also what we saw happening on kind of that deeper symbolic level? David, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I found it so interesting that, you know, so many people were going, you can't invade the people's house. Mm. And the people who came in were going, well, we're just coming into our house. Mm. And it was an interesting thing to see how there were a lot of people who were there that felt so right about what they were doing and truly felt like it was the right thing. And it's interesting. I found, you know, I was curious today when I saw a number of Republicans going, people didn't understand. They were coming in because they weren't being heard. And we were literally inside raising their objections that there was such a disconnect Hmm. between we are here for the people. We, We are working together. I appreciate that question about symbolism because I think that there are a lot of specifics around what happened yesterday and around what happened in other protests. But I think that in some ways there's um, the the symbolic level is some of what we react to. And so I, I had a friend who was trying to figure out how to respond to somebody on social media who said, well, how is this any different from the attacks on the police hmm. and, on, and on the police, you know, from firebombing the police station in Oregon, you know, in Portland. And so, and, and on some levels, on specific levels, that's, that's, you know, it's very different um, in terms of what happened. But on a symbolic level, if we say, well, okay, the police are part of the government and, you know, uh, attacking the police station, how is that different from attacking the Capitol? I can be like, okay, I can see where somebody can um, have on a symbolic level some um, uh, some way of reacting in similar ways to those things or seeing those things as similar or saying, how can you be reacting so differently to this than you did to that? And so uh, part of what I'm interested in is how do we actually try to understand how somebody could see something, like legitimately see something from a different perspective and not just say they're, you know, they're idiots or they're brainwashed or, you know, something else, but really say, I, I really want to understand, and I'm mm. really curious about this. Well, that's uh, I wonder about that because, uh, w- you know, we talked about this leading up to the election, but and we felt that there were these extreme differences. But I know that for some people, this seemed to have crossed some kind of a line where if you agree with this, we can't have a conversation anymore. You you believe that violence is the answer right now. And so do you feel like we've kind of gone into a territory in which communication is going to break down or, or do you still have hope? Well, I always have hope. Um, I, I think that it's true that there were some places where people really 
came together, you know, in terms of mm. seeing this and, and saying, this is, this is outrageous. This is wrong. This, you know, this should not, this should not happen. And, and that's great. I think where we have common ground, that's really hopeful in terms of giving us a place to work from. The thing that I know is that there's nuance within that. So you might say, yes, that should not have happened. That was wrong. But did the Capitol Police respond appropriately? Um, should this have happened? Should that have happened? You know, like some of the, the, the finer points of it, there will be disagreement about. And, and those are not necessarily finer points. They, they might be rather major points for people. And so I think that even if there are things that we can all agree on, we're still going to have to find ways of talking about and being interested in the aspects of this where there's disagreement. Mm -hmm. David and, you Kessler. Know, for me, it makes me think about sort of our emotional intelligence. And as Tanya was talking about, well, wait a minute, what about this situation? And is this fair? And I think when we talk about our feelings and grief and sadness and trauma, it is about the unfairness of things in the world, that we're all dealing with a feeling we collectively have on some level that something isn't fair to us. Mm. And our feelings have a right to be just because there are feelings and we can find constructive ways to talk about them. And you were so kind in the beginning to mention the new book that I wrote about finding meaning. So that's what I think about that we have to recognize this as grief and trauma and sadness. And where do we go? How do we find meaning in this? I just don't want, oh yeah, the Capitol was invaded. I hope we all got something. What can each of us individually go, oh, could the meaning be we're realizing it's imperative we communicate with one another, not just yell at one another, but communicate. It's important that we understand the consequences of our words. It's important. This generation, can we now recommit to valuing what a peaceful transition actually should look like? so that this doesn't happen again. Yeah, I, I think you've hit on something big here, which is how do we, how do we find meaning in, in this moment? And um, I don't know, David, as, as a grief expert, can, can you go on a little bit more about that? I think, I think it's, it's really important. Yeah, you here. know, I, I think one of the things that we get confused about when people hear finding meaning, they think we find meaning in the tragedy. You know, when your loved one dies of cancer, there's no meaning in that or someone's murdered. There's no meaning in that. There's no meaning in George Floyd's death. There's meaning in what we do after. There's meaning in how we remember, how we honor, what the legacy is. What will the legacy of January 6th be? Will it be a legacy of learning and change? Or is it the beginning of a series of horrible events that keep repeating themselves? You know, we have control over that. So we can find this meaning. You know, we're in a pandemic. I found meaning in that. We have found ways to control things, to wear masks, to take care of our neighbors, to communicate better. You know, there's meaning all around us that's for the, for the taking if we're just open to it. Hmm. Tanya, any kind of thoughts on that? I know we, we've talked a lot about communication here, but is there a way to kind of make meaning out of uh, a commitment to communication or something in that realm, I guess? Absolutely. I, David, I love your focus on finding meaning. I think that's so important. And one of the 
things about finding meaning is it's something each of us can do. And this is one of the challenges I think that we're finding is that there are these things going on and and we might feel really helpless in in these situations. And that can be one of the really scary things Mm. about it um, is that there's not anything that you can do. So I always think about, okay, what can I do? Is there something that each of us can do that's that's going to help to solve this problem? And so honestly, what I was doing yesterday is I was working on um, developing an online version of my workshop about how to have dialogue across political lines. And I was like, that's a thing I can do today. Mm. All of this is going on. There's not much I can do about what's going on in DC, but this is a thing that I can do. And a thing that each of us can do is we can try to heal some of those ruptures that have occurred in our society because of the political conflict. And when I talk about conversations across the political divide, I don't even necessarily mean that you need to talk to people who are the most extreme on the other side. And in fact, one of the best things that we can do right now is to correct our misperceptions that anyone who disagrees with us even a little bit is basically the same as the extremist and and to recognize where somebody might be a little closer to our view than we might be assuming they are based on what they post on social media or what they say or how they voted that i think finding the meaning that those actions have for people is so much more important than trying to read their behavior through our own lens mm. And David, I, I wonder, and I think a lot of people may be feeling, how do we find the patience or the grace or whatever the word is to just get to that point right now, which I think just feels so hard? To me, it's to look at what we're doing isn't working. You know, treating a difference of opinion as my enemy, making sure I get rid of all my Facebook friends that don't agree with me is a problem. It's causing this in the world. You know, getting mad at our friend on Facebook who's got a different comment instead of calling them up and going, let's have coffee on Zoom right now and chat about this. There's so much going on. I really want to know your thoughts on this. And beginning a dialogue, you know, the more we know one another and talk about things, it becomes harder to hate one another. Absolutely. I, I could not agree more. I always say that the that the only useful comment that we can make on somebody's uh, social media that we disagree with is to say, uh, hey, I'm interested to hear more about where you're coming from. Can we find a time to talk? Yeah. Tanya, and, and I, I really welcome this from both of you, though, but we'll start with you as we begin to wrap this up. Um, for those for those parents that are listening and they're trying to make sense of explaining this to their kids or their kids are asking questions, where, how, what does that conversation begin to look like? I think one of the things that's important is that we can model for children as well as teach them um, more directly about curiosity about other people's views. And so we can look at something and say, this was a terrible thing that happened. This should never have happened. And when you talk to your friends or you hear things from your friends' parents, they might have some perspectives on things that that you don't um, understand or you don't agree with. And so this is an opportunity to find out more about where they're coming from and what they think. And so I think if we do that rather than um, and, and I think we, we can 
you know, condemn people who take um, violent actions. But I don't think that we want to condemn the people who don't have the same views as us about that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's where the space for curiosity and, and, you know, what we might think of as intellectual humility can be really valuable. Mm -hmm. David, do you, do you have any thoughts on, on, on how, you know, I think it's easy to say to our kids, they disagree with us. They're bad. They're doing it wrong. But I'm such a believer in, can we help and remind each other, especially our kids, to be in the solution? Can we instead have a conversation with our kids going, what could we do in the future? What, what do you do in a disagreement? How can we make sure when we're in disagreements, you know, we're not barging over at each other's house and breaking windows? How can we learn? What, what solutions do you have? Yeah, and that's that's beautiful in terms of thinking about this moment really as an opportunity, uh, and and every moment and every crisis is is an opportunity for us to find ways to deepen our own understanding of uh, of ourselves and of other people. Professor Tanya Israel is a psychologist at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and author of Beyond Your Bubble, How to Connect Across the Political Divide. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much, Jonathan. And David Kessler is an author and expert on grief and loss. He's the author of a number of books, including Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief. David, thank you as well. Thank you. Still to come on Life Examined, what happens in the mind of an extremist? And how does someone end up in one of these groups? Our next guest says that reactions of anger, despair, and frustrations fueled by emotive conspiracy theories can be highly addictive. Join us after this short break on KCRW's Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard from David Kessler and Tanya Israel about our collective response and how a moment of crisis is an opportunity to deepen our own understanding of ourselves and of other people. And speaking of other people, how do we understand those who participated in Wednesday's Capitol attack? Our next guest says we need to be clear-eyed about what happens to ferment extremism and that conspiracy theories and shared grievances foster kinship and a deep sense of belonging. Peter Simi has spent more than 20 years studying extremist groups and violence. He's an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at Chapman University and the author of American Swastika, Inside the White Power Movement's Hidden Spaces of Hate. Peter Simi, welcome to Life Examined on KCRW. Yeah, thanks for having me. You're somebody who's been looking at questions of extremism and violence for decades, um, as we now begin to make sense of the violence that erupted in the, in the Capitol, what, what's going through your mind as you make sense of this with all of the knowledge you bring to it? Well, one of the things I'm trying to do is look at it from the perspective of those individuals who were involved in the insurrection yesterday. Um, and so I'm thinking, you know, at a psychological level, what, what, how do we make sense out of this? And, and I think there's a, a number of things we can look at in terms of individuals as well as group dynamics. So one of the things that's happening is this um, issue of what's called mortality salience, which is the sense of the nearing of death, 
All right? It's a heightened sensitivity to, to the likelihood of your death. And you can imagine um, that that experience is a very uh, stressful and emotional experience for individuals as, as they uh, become closer to death. And especially if it's for unnatural causes. In other words, if you're being attacked, uh, if there's a person or persons that you perceive that are preying on you, right? That that, that really creates a sense of instability and vulnerability. And of course, this is the classic fight or flight, right? And... Um, what we see among political extremists who resort to the kind of violence that we saw yesterday, oftentimes that's coupled with a high degree or a high level of mortality salience. And what, what, what we're finding is that there's a sense that literally people's physical lives are in jeopardy. And they're in jeopardy from a number of external threats whether it be kind of demographic changes where white Americans who have um, enjoyed uh, an experience of, of uh, dominance in U.S. society, that position has been threatened for, for a number uh, of, of years from, from a certain individual's perspective. And part of that sense of threat is around this idea of demographic change, that this notion that whites are supposedly going to become a numerical minority in, in the United States in coming years. So that's one type uh, of threat that's perceived that's driving uh, certain kind of actors who kind of, um, you know, come together in terms of some of their perspectives and view of the world. Another type of threat is this sense that America as a country is being kind of taken away from, from individuals, that things are being turned upside down, um, of the threat of communism you hear a lot. And of course, this is a longstanding fear that uh, has played a pretty uh, dominant role in, in American politics for throughout the 20th century. And you continue to see this. And so, for instance, some people believe that Joe Biden is a communist. He's, he's referred to as a socialist, a communist who's bought and paid for by China. Uh, so there's this sense that he's going to be working on behalf of foreign enemies, so to speak. And so they perceive that as a threat. There's a sense that constitutional rights are being taken away from citizens. A lot of emphasis on the Second Amendment and a, a real deep uh, relationship to gun culture and a very strong defensiveness about guns in, in terms of a real kind of ongoing fear that people's gun rights are being taken away. And eventually, in the near future, we're going to get to the point where they're going to come door to door and literally confiscate citizens' guns. And of course, they're going to do that because they want a citizenry who are disarmed so that they can put people in camps. These are the kinds of ideas that are widely circulating in these circles. And of course, with digital environments and the ability for disinformation and propaganda to circulate widely, that, that makes the problem that much more worse. And you know we've seen this uh, with covid uh, for example, and all of the disinformation associated with the, the virus um, and the idea that the government is uh, using the virus to control people and um, um, the idea that um, the vaccine may actually be uh, the first step towards the chip that's going to be you're going to be forced to take the chip. Uh, so a lot of a lot of conspiracy theories that are that are really heightening the sense of of mortality salience and the sense of threat. And so that's that that's definitely a, a major, I would say, a motivator for what we saw yesterday. 
Mortality salience is an interesting term. I've never never quite heard it before. So just to make sure I understand this, um, some of these individuals really feel as if their lives are at stake, that the situation is so stark and so dangerous that therefore they feel compelled to use violence. Do I have that right? Yeah, absolutely. They literally feel like their physical safety is in jeopardy. They feel a sense of kind of um, jeopardy as far as like the liberties, uh, their freedoms are being taken away. But it even goes beyond that to where they literally believe in, in many cases that their lives are are on the verge of being taken from them. And then what happens emotionally, psychologically, where suddenly we see this eruption of violence? I mean, is it a surge of adrenaline? Is that that fight or flight state? I mean, what happens when, when, the, when the, it, we finally tip into that moment? Yeah, I mean, the, the response is going to be varied. For some people, it'll be too much. And they'll, they'll be an awakening of sorts that this is more than they bargained for. So they showed up to the event, which in and of itself was a, a type of action, right? So this is not just the people who came to D.C., um, you know, and, and were present on the 6th, you know, they took a, a certain degree of action. In other words, many people who shared their beliefs stayed home, right? Uh, but but this group of individuals said, you know, I it's not enough to just have the beliefs. I've got to act on those beliefs. And so they, they went to D.C. They took the time off of work or they spent the money to get there and they made that level of commitment to act uh, and be present. As things escalated, there'll be a, a some segment of the indiv- of the individuals who are present for that who will who will respond by saying, wait a second, this is a little too much. Others, however, will respond in quite the opposite way. It's almost like it's a taste of blood and they're going to want more. And that's one of the things we have to be very vigilant about looking for is a, a radicalization effect that's going to likely occur uh, among some of the individuals who are either there directly present yesterday or who were there present vicariously. That is, they were watching on all of the live streams that were readily available yesterday, or they were watching the video feeds that were readily available on, on Twitter, or they were watching on 24-hour cable news networks. There's so much footage yesterday that was readily available where you could literally almost watch it um, in, in, you know, happen while it was occurring. Um, that, that's going to have a radicalizing effect for some individuals. So you get a real kind of variation in terms of how people respond to the very same type of stimuli. And I wonder, too, if, if what that brings out, I mean, you mentioned the smell of blood, almost an animalistic warrior mentality. I mean, something surely overcomes the body when they're put in those type of situations. And it's a powerful drug, I take it. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, you know, um, potentially a helpful way of thinking about this is that, you know, you're getting a real physical response to immersing yourself in these kind of ideas and in this kind of action. And that, that, that kind of physical response um, can have addictive-like qualities. I mean, it's not necessarily the same as becoming addicted to heroin, but, but there can be a, a, a real kind of almost involuntary kind of sense of um, attachment to being uh, immersed and to um, really kind of organizing your life around these kind of conspiracy theories that are so highly emotive and that are, you know, constantly generating a sense of anger, a sense of frustration, a sense of despair, 
Uh, and those emotional reactions are, are in some ways very, very kind of addictive. That's fascinating. I mean, we, we hear this, for example, of people that are at war, how in a sense, even though they're very damaged by it, they are addicted to going back into the conflict. And that can happen, you know, physically as somebody fighting, as we saw in the Capitol. But as you said, too, the emotional component of of the surge of feelings we get by by attaching ourselves to things like these very emotional conspiracy theories. Exactly. And, and you know, another component that sometimes we miss is that, you know, what we saw yesterday, the, the vitriol, the anger, the hatred, right? People wearing Camp Auschwitz T-shirts. Who would do that? But there's also a sense of camaraderie uh, that you're 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 part of a like-minded universe of people who understand the truth. Most people don't get it, but you're part of this select group of people who do, and you really um, are are aware of what's happening to this country, and you're aware that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. You're aware of the things that you learned from QAnon about the deep state. You know, you're aware of these secrets out there that are hiding in plain sight that most people are just blind to. They're, you know, so-called sheeple. And so being part of that is also very intoxicating in the sense of developing the sense of kinship along could be race, racial or ethnic lines, uh, imagined um, kind of kinship along uh, uh, almost like a familial uh, uh, sense uh, sensibility. Uh, of course, uh, a national kind of kinship becomes part of it as well. Um, so there's all these different ways in which this community becomes kind of constructed and bound where individuals are bound together and become part of a collective that um, really has a powerful influence on individual behaviors so funny. You know, in psychology, kinship is a very powerful word. I mean, there have been theories that say it's through kinship that we develop a sense of self-esteem or a sense of just who we are as individuals. I mean, that's a really important thing to mention here. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, it's, uh, like I said, can be overlooked, but very critical. And, And, you know, being part of that collective, individuals will sometimes engage in behaviors that they wouldn't otherwise engage in on their own. And that sometimes is part of being part of this mob. You know, we, we heard it referred to as a mob, and, and I think that's right on target. We saw mob behavior where to some extent it's a collective that's acting. There's a group think there's a kind of uh, – a, a lack of individuality that that gets lost because you're part of this entity that that shares – this sense of grievance and um, believes that taking this kind of action is going to help you address those grievances. Let's talk now a little bit about how someone ends up in that kind of a place, in a cult, in an extremist group. If we go back to looking at someone in, in, as their younger self or in a different part of their, their life, uh, who is susceptible and why to ending up in one of these groups? Well, that, it's a great question. It's a complicated one. It, it, it ranges on different levels. So if you are part of a group context, those, those group dynamics, we're all susceptible to those. So once you get to that kind of group context, once you're part of that kind of scenario, that situation, you're going to be susceptible, uh, all of us as individuals are going to be susceptible on some level. The question is, is how did people get to the point where they were in D.C. yesterday? 
Now, how they end up there is going to vary quite a bit from person to person. There's a lot of kind of unique idiosyncratic circumstances that generate how a person ends up being, um, you know, present for, for an event like we saw yesterday. In some cases, you'll see that a person's personal kind of background experiences in childhood and adolescence, if, if, it's, if there's a substantial amount of trauma and other types of adverse experiences present, that, that does create certain vulnerabilities, certain susceptibility to a whole host of different kinds of negative consequences or outcomes in a person's life. Uh, in some cases, that will take the form of becoming involved in, in an occult or some type of extremist movement. But it also could just as easily take the form of, in, in many, a number of many other ways. And in some cases, that you, know, you have a person who has you know, a substantial amount of trauma in their life that's unresolved. They've had a substantial amount of adverse experiences. And they have a whole host of kind of negative uh, co-occurring uh, outcomes that are part of of of, of their uh, life uh, experiences. So that can play a role. You can have, you know, in some cases, there could be a family uh, influences or peer influences that play a role. In other words, you're introduced to some of these ideas through family members or through uh, peer networks. It, you could have life stressor events. So in other words, you don't have substantial amount of trauma in your childhood and adolescence, but sometime in adulthood, you experience a substantial life stressor event that really kind of changes your trajectory. And that could, uh, coupled with other things, uh, kind of set you off in a new course. Um, so there's all these different factors that can be present in a, in a person's life that could help steer them to where they end up you know, in, in D.C. helping um, participate in a, in a violent insurrection. Um, so there's no single way that that happens. But once you end up in that place and you're there, then there's these, like I said, these group dynamics are going to take hold and, and, and influence people in some pretty similar ways. That's why the, the crowd kind of behaves in and, in, you know, it's not exactly completely uniform, but there's a lot of uniformity in the crowd behavior. What about the question of people looking at a figure like Trump as almost godlike or as someone who uh, who who can who can rally them to such an extent they'll believe anything? Talk a little bit about this process of these leaders throughout time who were so persuasive in the arguments they had or the emotions that they stirred, that somehow they were able to get people to go through with the kind of acts that we saw in Washington. In, in some ways, this might be the scariest part of the discussion because we've known that leaders like this exist in other countries at other times. But to actually live through an experience, one of our democratically elected officials at the highest level who has this type of leadership style, who has these kind of psychological characteristics that share so much in common, and I'm not speaking, you know, I, <laughs> I don't think I'm speaking, uh, you know, in any kind of extreme way here, but has so much in common with, uh, for instance, fascist leaders. Um, to see that in our own country at this moment in time is, is truly frightening. And we need to be, I think, very clear-eyed about how leaders cultivate followings and how they use misinformation, disinformation, propaganda, how they play on uh, people's emotions, and how widespread 
their followings can become. And that this doesn't just go away once that person's not in in a position of power, at least, you know, political elected uh, a position of power, that you still we still have to address what happened. And, and I, I fear that as we move forward, there's going to be a tendency to kind of bypass that. How did how did we get to to this point? I think there's going to be a tendency to say, let's find some reconciliation and almost pretend like this didn't happen. And I think that's a huge mistake if that's the approach we end up taking. I think that'll be a huge mistake because, A, you have what some people refer to as Trump's army out there who are still very much aggrieved. And so pretending like this didn't happen doesn't do anything to address uh, the very real threats that they represent. And it also doesn't address the broader underlying dynamics that made it possible in the first place. And so, I, you know, we're going to have to do some real soul searching on, on trying to figure out exactly how to move forward. But pretending like it didn't happen to me is, is, would be a huge mistake. How do we, as a society or historically, how have societies responded in a healthy way to this style of leadership and, and kind of the cult following that, that begins to, to form, you know, in its wake? What's, what's the path through this? I, I think there has to be a commitment to honesty. So we talk about reconciliation, but we need to talk about truth and reconciliation. But then there's this other spot in this equation here that we really don't understand, which is the social media component, the digital environment component. And that certainly was obviously a, a really substantial you know, component of, cult rise, of Trump's rise to this kind of cult-like figure. And, you know, we're, we're just really in the early days of navigating these environments and um, the idea of, of, you know, such free flowing. And we've always had a problem with disinformation, misinformation, propaganda. That's, that's not new, but to have it so readily available and widely circulated and have so many different channels and avenues where it's coming from and bots. And I mean, there's just so many different components to the digital aspect of how how something like um, this type of uh, cult leader comes to power. That that part, you know, we've got a lot of question marks, a lot more question marks in my mind than we do have any good answers for, for how this gets addressed. I mean, some of it's long term is that, you know, it's a generational education and a commitment to generational education that is starting with very young children and helping them understand this environment that they're they're now going to live in from the time that they, you know, are born and have all of this access to all of this information, much of which won't be accurate. Well, how do we teach children at a very young, young age how to navigate those kind of environments? You know, and we're, we've started to do a little bit of that, but, but obviously this is going to take, this is a long-term uh, strategy that's going to take uh, time for it to really see if what, what works and what doesn't work. Peter Simi has spent more than 20 years studying extremist groups and violence. He's an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at Chapman University and the author of American Swastika Inside the White Power Movement's Hidden Spaces of Hate. Thanks again for the time. Yeah, thanks for having me.
Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. You can also email me your feedback directly at jonathan.bastion at kcrw.org. To learn more about our guests and this topic, check out our webpage. That's kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastion. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week.